The book of John, chapter 5, same passage we heard read to us earlier today. The study will go from verse 30 to 47, but I want to just remind us of where we are by reading for you verses 30 to 32 again. John 5, beginning at verses 30 to 32. Jesus here, continuing his argument with the Pharisees that he is the ultimate authority, says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. I recently read of a staff member at a church, a complaint about her church's website. She loved her church, but... The complaint was the slogan that was splattered across that opening page. It said, we serve God with our strengths and find grace for our weaknesses. We serve God for our strengths and find grace with our weaknesses, for our weaknesses. And you hear that and you're like, I don't that seemed that bad to me. But the commentary continues, this gives the impression that God smiles on our strengths, our competence, our capacity for goodness and beauty, and then, by grace, all our pesky imperfections are swept under the rug. But, the good news of Jesus is not that we get a merit badge for being put together and hope that God ignores our failures. We serve God not only with our strengths, but in our weaknesses. Remember Paul? 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then as if he somehow lost his mind, he goes on to talk about all the other horrible ways that God shows himself strong amid trouble and trial and personal failure and weakness. The article continues, I wonder if Paul's website would say, we serve God in our weaknesses and receive grace for all our damnable strengths. In college, I'm reading here, my best friend confessed his most secret sin to our pastor. Sitting on our pastor's deep-set porch, he told him what he was most ashamed of. Then my pastor said something that utterly transformed my friend. We need you in our church, not in spite of your struggle, but because of it. Can you imagine hearing that? 
The weakness and sin in my friend's life and his ongoing story of repentance and becoming whole was the very place where God could be most glimpsed and known, where God could show himself to be uh, the rest that he needed throughout his friend's life, this friend's life. Friends, I want to remind you of something. We come to church today because we find ourselves to be needy. We are needy people. Rich Mullins, the the guy that uh, wrote uh, Our God is an Awesome God. Maybe you remember that praise chorus from the, the late 80s and early 90s. He comments on this, saying, I never understood why going to church made you a hypocrite. Because nobody goes to church because they're perfect. If you've got it all together, you don't need to go. You can go jogging with all the other perfect people on Sunday morning. Every time you go to church, you're confessing again to yourself, to your family, to the people you pass on the way there, to the people who will greet you, that you don't have it all together. And that you need their support, you need their direction, you need some accountability, you need some help. Friends, that's why we're here today. The ones that Jesus calls are the weary ones, the broken ones, the ones who battle addiction, the ones who aren't what they wish they were. It's the ones who wrestle and repent, the ones who fail again and again. It is the doubting ones, the distracted ones. Those who still pray for God to help their unbelief even though they believe. It is for those who confess the Lordship of Christ boldly at church but sometimes crumble in speaking up for him in the world. It's for those who know Jesus to be the ruler but occasionally live as as if they themselves are in charge. Is that anybody in the room? I mean, here we are on our third week of a study of the authority of Christ And I'm wondering if anybody is thinking, going from week two, moving into week three, that you're nailing it right now. Like, you know what? My life has totally changed now. Jesus is truly the boss. Life is great. I've been so bold with my witness, proclaiming his authority to the nations. I doubt it. But guess what? It's okay. Because that's what the word's for. It will continue to do its thing. And this text in particular works in the needy among us who are wrestling through the ultimacy of Christ's authority, not only in our own lives, but in proclaiming it for others. Maybe you've been here the last couple of weeks and you're like, yeah, I buy in. I totally get it. I saw the story of provocation, where Jesus goes in to Jerusalem on that uh, busy Sabbath day, heals the guy, does it in a way that provokes the Pharisees, it it grates against their law because he's doing some kind of special work on a day when nobody's supposed to be doing work. I get that Jesus is the ruler over the rules. I get that he's the guy that tells the Jewish leaders and the religious types that I'm the boss. You get that. And maybe you even get not only the provocation, but the explanation, right? Like, he says, hey, here's why I'm the boss. Here's why I rule over everything else that you could possibly imagine. Uh, Number one, I am the representative of the Father. 
And you hear that and you say, Amen, I agree. He is indeed equal with the Father. He is the divine representative. And then the second part, you agree with. He is the ruler over the resurrection and judgment. He's the MC of the grand cosmic event on the calendar. We believe that Jesus is right when he's saying that. But then comes that pesky thing called practice, living it out. How would then our lives look different if we indeed say that, yeah, he is the ruler over the rules. He is the ultimate authority. Well, there would be behavioral things. And there would be what I would call broadcasting things. I think we would speak more boldly about that authority to others. And I think that we would live more exclusively for his glory alone. And yet, we may not be there yet. And so guess what? Jesus isn't done. He's not done talking. He has more to say to this. And so we move, we move here from the provocation to the explanation to the verification. If there's any doubt in your mind, you know, like, okay, I could say those things. I know Jesus is Lord of all. I know he's the ruler over the rules. But man, I just wish I was more confident about that. I wish that, like, it worked its way from here to here. To here. I want some more proof. I I want a little more surety. I, I, I want some steel in my spine. Jesus continues his monologue. And what he does here in this passage that could be confusing to some is he provides verification of these claims that he is indeed the ruler over the rules, that he's the boss of all. Just in case you're not that sure, just in case you think, I need a little more proof, this provides proof. The Greek word that shows up over and over and over again, martyr, I'm just telling you the... uh, the root, not the actual word. Sometimes it's a noun, sometimes it's a verb. It shows up 11 times here. Martur, or martureo, is the same word from which we get martyr. Uh, what is a martyr? A martyr is someone who died on account of their testimony of Jesus Christ. In the uh, ancient Greek world, it was just simply someone who gave eyewitness testimony in a court of law. Eleven times that word shows up in this text where Jesus says, I have testimony, I have proof, I have um, evidence of what I'm claiming. I realize that what I'm saying is big. And the natural response to this by the Jewish leaders or anyone who's reading this with even just a modicum of interest would be like, who the heck do you think you are? What gives you the right to say these things? And Jesus acknowledges it and says, hey, I get it. Let me give you some proof. Let me give you some verification. Let me provide you with some testimony to the truth that I am the ultimate ruler. And so our text steals the spine, if you will. It it emboldens the heart with just basically three lines of evidence. Three proofs or evidences that Jesus is the ultimate authority that he claims to be. They're really easy to follow and see. If you've been reading ahead this week, you've probably already noted them. There's John the Baptist. He's going to mention John the Baptist being one of those. I'll tell you the relevance of that in a second. The next one that he mentions uh, is the the works uh, that the Father enabled him to do. Uh, This is his miraculous works. And then the third one is the Word of God itself. 
it actually pointed to one who is Jesus to be the ruler over all. Um, for those of you who like to take notes, the, the, the alliterated way to say this is the three evidences are the witness from God, the works of God, and the word of God. Witness John the Baptist works his miracles word. I want to look at those. And I want you to understand that they're not just some archaic argument with Jesus isolated to the Pharisees of that particular time. This is something that will embolden you even now when you understand it. The first one. The first one's interesting because Jesus actually isn't that interested in the first one. He just mentions it. It's kind of funny when somebody... Like, you would expect me to say, well, I'm going to make this argument, but it's not that good an argument, but I'm going to make it anyway, because I'm human. Well, Jesus indeed was truly human, and you see that here. He knows how humanity thinks, and he's going to give them an argument that he says, it's not my best argument, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, because I think it might help you, but it doesn't help me. Read it. It's funny. Uh, John 6, I mean 5, excuse me, uh, looking at verse 31, he acknowledges, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now just pause there. Jesus understands that in this like legal battle that's going on, because remember, he's being, um, he's being accused by the Pharisees. They're, they're having an impromptu people's court over whether or not Jesus has the authority to be doing this stuff on the Sabbath. So Jesus uses legal language. And what is it that he says here? He says, look, hey, I get it. I, I, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, Jesus isn't saying that you can't trust anything that I say by myself, but he's just saying this isn't admissible in a court of law. Surely you've been in those situations before where you had to sign a document and it needed like a witness, right? Well, you can't sign your name and then sign the witness name. Like It just doesn't work that way. Uh, Jesus is acknowledging that. I mean, the entire Jewish legal system was built on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So Jesus is buying into that and says, okay, I get it. I've made the claim, but I know that you want this to be legally verified, so I'm going to continue. And then this is the funny part that I was telling you about. Jesus ultimately wants to get to the testimony of the Father, but he's going to give them the testimony of John the Baptist. Look at verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me. That's his his second uh, testimony. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, Jesus doesn't say who this other person is. He just says, look, I've got another one. And this this testimony is like the clincher. This one will seal the deal. But then he talks about John. Look at verse 33. You, you all, sit to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. And now look, note verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus is saying here, hey, remember I told you I've got like a good closer testimony? It's not John the Baptist. I'm only telling you about John the Baptist because I think that you guys will benefit from this. He says the testimony that I have is not just man. It's one better than that. But he still talks about John the Baptist anyway. Why? Because John the Baptist was the first guy to show up and actually be recognized by God's people, the nation of Israel, as a valid prophet. 400 years, they had not heard from God in a prophetic way. And this guy shows up, and not only do the people, but the Jewish leaders recognize, like, whoa, 
We have a bona fide prophet on our hands. And guess what that prophet said? He said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Um, Friends, you don't have to be a theology professor to understand that even in the Jewish mindset, only God could take away sins. And John the Baptist, without any apology, says, Yeah, here's the guy who will take away the sin of the entire world. And so the, test, the testimony of John the Baptist was strong for them, humanly speaking. And it even says in verse 34, I mean verse 35, it says, He was a burning and shining lamp. I like that. He was heat and light. So he made things clear and you could, you could feel what he was saying. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Notice that. They, they, they agreed with him for a while. Until he started pointing to a Messiah figure that they themselves didn't like. Notice verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. He's going to begin to talk about, verses 36 and following, another testimony because they just basically gave up on John. They said, okay, we don't like John. Uh, We don't like the direction that this thing's going. You're going to find out more about why they don't like John's testimony a little later. But I would say, to start off with, we have a line of evidence. If you want to know if Jesus truly is Lord of all, like how do I really know that? How can I be sure of that? How can I be confident of that? Like when I'm talking with the guy who was trained at the Division I University in philosophy and he's challenging me on what I believe, you know, like you're all of a sudden thinking like, okay, um, where's my apologetics books? What am I going to go to? Jesus says, hey, just reference John the Baptist. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know that John the Baptist is going to win the day. Why wouldn't he? Do you understand that John the Baptist was one of the most historically verified individuals in the first century? I told you this a few weeks ago when we were studying John chapter 1. He would have been on Time magazines like men of the century, top three at least. He was recognized across the entire ancient Mediterranean world as a valid prophet. And that guy recognized by pagans and Jews alike, said, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God, this is the ultimate authority. And we have multiple extra-biblical records, excuse me, biblical records, and some extra-biblical that prove that. Why wouldn't you believe it? Now, sorry to be, play the philosopher here, I'm not one. I'm not an apologist. That's somebody who uh, professionally defends the Christian faith. I'm not that great at that, but I know a little bit about some other historical stuff. And can I just give you like a counter-reference for a second? How many of you believe, you don't have to raise your hand, but you believe in Socrates, that he actually existed and was wise? Okay, let me just ask this. How many of you have heard the name Socrates? All right. If you've ever seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, they talk about Socrates. They call him Socrates, I think. But Socrates, yeah, historical figure, he's like the, the bedrock of Western philosophy. You want to know something interesting about Socrates? I mean, everybody believes in him, and everybody believes he's wise. He didn't write a single thing. You know the only way we know Socrates existed? Plato. 
There was a couple of mentions of them um, in some kind of ancient Greek play about 60 years after, no, yeah, about 60 years after he lived. But like, nobody questions the existence of Socrates. Why? Because Plato said he existed. That's one. And you look at the biblical record and you see that one of the most well-established prophetic religious leading individuals in that particular century said, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Not some quack off on some island somewhere, but somebody who had the ear of the Jewish masses who would have actually been very, very sensitive to anyone claiming that so-and-so was the Messiah. He testified to it and Jesus says, by the way, that's not even my best evidence. Here's a second line of evidence. The works of God. There's the witness of God, that one that God raised up to testify to Jesus being the ultimate ruler. But look in verse 36 and notice Jesus' second line of testimony or evidence. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So now what is Jesus pointing to? He's pointing to his works. And I think sometimes we we read Bible stories a little too quickly. We think they're novel. We think they're cute. I think there's an unintended consequence even of reading these things like in a children's Bible format. You see these bright, colorful pictures, you know, and, and they take on like the same genre of all the other make-believe things that we read to our children. Now, again, I read storybook Bibles and things like that to my children. I'm not by any way saying that we should not do that. All I'm trying to point out is, you know, by the way that we just make the Bible stories of Jesus' miracles so accessible, it kind of takes the edge off. We forget that they were first and foremost historical testimonies. It's funny to me that people are always looking for evidence outside of the scriptures for Jesus. You understand that the scriptures came together because there was evidence of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul were all independent individuals. They didn't get together one day over a cup of coffee and say, hey, how can we put together a religious book? Let's call it the New Testament. It needs a good marketing strategy. What happened was they all wrote independently of the things that they saw Jesus do. The very bedrock of everything that they were telling you about Jesus wasn't that he claimed this, he claimed that. They'll tell you that. But he did this, he did that. It seems in light of what he did that God was on the scene. Now, friends, I want you to understand that that true miracles, and R.C. Sproul helped me with this, so credit to him. True miracles can only be done by God. True miracles can only be done by God. We use the word miracle a little too loosely. You go to a great parking spot at the mall, you're like, it's a miracle. <laughs> no, that's not a miracle. A miracle is when you create something out of nothing. When you take death and turn it into life. Only God can do that. You get that, right? Let me give you a little angelology here for a second. Satan can't do that either. Satan can give the appearance of a miracle. 
But sometimes I think, for whatever reason, whatever movies you've been watching, we give Satan a little more credit than he actually deserves. He's an angel. He's a created being. Only God can do true miracles. And that's why miraculous activity verified the messenger. That's why in in periods in which God's word was being inscripturated, miraculous activity would be on the increase because God would use it. It was a sign. It was a sign that this person is from God. (laughs) And so Jesus did things, and people actually reported on it, things that, that no one could have done apart from God's divine enablement. And he's saying, this is testimony that I am indeed who I said I am. I mean, if you just think about what we've seen so far in the book of John, I mean, it'll blow your mind. I mean, let's just assume for a second that that somewhere uh, between two to four individuals came to you and told you that they saw someone instantaneously turn 150 gallons of water into the finest vintage wine without even the touch of a finger or the addition of a single chemical. What would you think? Like, huh, I doubt it, but maybe, you know, like, it's kind of weird. Okay, another one comes and says, uh, someone you never met, but, and before the dawning of the internet, by the way, before things could be photoshopped, they casually disclose, I mean, this person, they, they know, casually disclose the exact knowledge of the number of sexual partners that you had with in your life, and could even disclose the detail of the extent of your sexual purity at this very moment. Now, that one gets really personal. But that's exactly what Jesus did with the woman at the well. She she heard that and she was like, what? But that's just another account. Let me give you another one. What if, uh, just very shortly after that, uh, someone else uh, had testified to uh, a child being instantaneously healed after spiraling toward death in an ICU unit? And how did it happen? What changed things? The mere pronouncement of a word from over a day's journey. You'd be thinking, whoa, this is crazy. What do you do with the story of the guy who was literally four days dead and this dude shows up and he weeps like he's at a funeral because he is and then cries out like you're waking up a child in the morning, come forth, and the guy comes back to life. What do you do when the same person is tortured and executed in the most brutal way possible by the Roman government in public so that hundreds of people would see him? He would be put in a public tomb, one well known by all, one secured by guards, and then even he himself somehow, some way, rolls that stone away and walks out. What do you think? It was these very works that testified to the truth of Jesus. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not just making this up. I've got evidence. John the Baptist is evidence, the witness of God, the works of God, the works that he enables me to do. That is evidence. We should heed that. We should believe that. There's a third line of evidence, and that is the Word of God. Jesus saves his best testimony for last. Now, I want to warn you about something. Verses 37 to 47, that's a lot, a lot of ground there to cover. It's a pretty complex um, kind of argument because Jesus basically works in three little movements here. I'm not going to try to label them for you. 
But I want you to know the main point. The main point is he's going to say, hey, the word of God that has been written down, it points to me, it testified about me. He's going to make this really clear at the beginning. Because he's going to talk about, hey, look, you search the scriptures and in them, you know, you've missed it because you need to find eternal life in me, right? You know that part, search the scriptures. And then at the end, you're going to see some language that you recognize about Moses. Moses, I mean, uh, I don't accuse you, Moses accuses you. When he's talking about Moses, Moses is not up and walking around from the dead. He's talking about, like, Moses, like we would talk about Shakespeare. (laughs) We're talking about his writings, So he's talking about the word of God at the end. He's talking about the word of God at the beginning. And then there's this little section in the middle. Now I'm going to admit, I spent a lot of time (laughs) trying to understand what was going on there. But here's my best way of summarizing what's going on there. He's going to explain why they can't see him in the word. So, all right, I will give it labels. Word, why you can't see me in the word, word. Okay? Now, let's just walk through these really quickly because I want you to be able to know this passage so well that you're able to use this for your own increase in confidence when you need it so that you can help other believers who would be struggling. I don't want to just survive this thing and move on and advance. I want you to be able to grasp it as well. Notice how Jesus points to the Word of God as a true testimony to His authority. Verse 37 And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Notice that. He's already said that the Father has testified through the works that he's enabled him to do. Now he's going to say, the Father who has sent me has already, past tense, borne witness about me, testified to me. And he begins with this denunciation of the Pharisees. Do you notice it? His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Now, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the Jewish religious leaders. Like him saying that they don't have any idea about God's special revelation is an insult at best. This would be um, kind of like saying... Gordon Ramsay doesn't know anything about cooking, or Steph Curry doesn't know anything about basketball. I mean, these guys were obsessed with God's special revelation, his word. Notice what he says. He says, I know that you don't know God in a special way because you don't believe in me. But then what does he add? You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Listen to this, friends. Like, you thought your Bible study was intense? They actually believed that the more they studied the Bible, the better chance they had of getting eternal life. I want to read to you from one of the most popular rabbis of that day, a man by the name of Hillel. Hillel. There were two major schools of rabbinic thought. This guy was the granddaddy of the most popular one. And in it, he actually discloses uh, something pretty interesting. He says, The more the study of the law, the more life. If a man has gained for himself the words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. You hear that? It's, It's kind of like, The slogan, we study the scriptures as if eternal life depends upon it. And they did. And Jesus is saying, 
despite all your study of the scriptures, you've never known God in a special way. Little theology lesson here. God has revealed himself to us in two ways, generally and specially. Generally is creation, conscience. Specially is word and miracles. There's others, but I'm just sticking it, keeping it simple. When he says, you've never seen God, you've never heard God, you don't have his testimony in you, he's saying, you've, you don't know anything of God's special revelation. And then he goes on to tell them, I know you searched the scriptures, but guess what? You've missed it. You've totally missed the point. Because if you were really studying the scriptures in the right way, you would know that they all pointed to me. It was an interpretive error on their part because of some inherent bias that we'll see in a few moments. But I want you to know something, friends, like big newsflash here. You can read and study this Bible and still be lost and going to hell. That's a kind of a dangerous thing. And how do you know? How do you know if you're getting it or if you're missing it? Well, Jesus says, if you are really, truly taking in God's special revelation, you're doing it right when you see the scriptures pointing to him as the supreme ruler and king and rescuer. That's when you know you're getting it right. I mean, it says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet notice verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Friends, the problem wasn't that they didn't have the word of God. The problem was they just did not want Jesus. He was not the ruler they were looking for. And they didn't want him. My wife accused me yesterday. I didn't get your permission to ask this, to say this. But you were right, and I want you to know I did what you asked me to do <laughs> after this. She said, you are so hard-headed. You know, aren't we all? We're stubborn about the stuff that we want to be stubborn about. There's just some things I'm like, you will not convince me otherwise. I see, I, yes, I agree. Yes, we, I'm getting verbal, facial testimony here. That <laughs> These guys were dead set. Not that guy. No no matter what the scripture said, they tried to do all kinds of gymnastics to get around the fact that this was the one. I probably had, I stayed here longer last Sunday than I have ever. Uh, Talking to people after the service, I loved it. It's awesome. Seriously, I'll hang out as long as you want to. What I found interesting, though, about the conversations I was having after church on Sunday is that multiple people were coming up to me saying like, how is it that the Jewish people didn't recognize X, Y, Z about Jesus? As if like it was an intellectual problem. Friends, I want you to know it's not an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual problem. The scriptures clearly point to Jesus. There's no denying it. It's not that you need another argument in your tool belt. Like, the truth is, it's there. But what needs to happen is the blinders need to be removed. Jesus says, look, you can't see me in the Scriptures, and therefore you don't have eternal life because you don't want to. You're hard-headed. Which takes us to the second little portion, right? What is it that they were looking for when they were reading their Bibles? You know how it is. Like, you can... You can read a book or a quote or something looking for what you want to find, or you can read it for what the author is trying to say. 
What is it that they were looking for? What is it that they actually wanted? Now, just take in the whole picture of what Jesus tells them. A little interjection here. Here's going to reveal their problem. He said, um, verse 41, I do not receive glory from other people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Uh, Anybody else struggling to follow the logic there? I'm just admitting, it's kind of deep. Here's some highlights, okay? Jesus is saying, look, I don't care about man's praise. This is the the Justin Harris paraphrase. (laughs) I don't care about man's praise. By implication, it seems you care a lot about man's praise. You don't have the love of God in you. You don't love God. By implication, you love man's praise. Here's the evidence of that. I've come in the Father's name, and you don't receive me. But you'll receive any Tom, Dick, or Harry that comes in his own name and claims to be the Messiah. Why? Here's the last one. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? You just want the pat on the back. You want the attaboy. You just, you are looking for teachers and messiahs that will make you feel good about yourself. That's why you don't see me in the scriptures. Are you getting it? He says, you refuse to see me. You read your Bible looking for ways to affirm your own lifestyle, your own preferences. Anybody in here ever done that? Oh, okay, just me. All right. You know you can do that, right? Ooh, it's, it's dangerous, it's real. Humorous, humorous small thing. I remember growing up in the, you know, this fundamentalist church that had all kinds of rules about dating and stuff, and I was dating this girl, and I was looking for biblical rationale to be able to kiss her. And I found it. <laughs> it was somewhere in Genesis where, like, Jacob kissed uh, Rachel or something, and I'm like, oh, they weren't married. Now, I know that sounds totally stupid. But what's the difference between that and you taking the verse of the day to fuel your own hopes and dreams, ambitions and desires, twisting scriptures for your own benefit? I mean, we have individuals around here who have like justified all kinds of immorality because they're like, well, I don't think the Bible actually teaches that. There's nothing that says anything about this. Some of you will get good, wise advice from certain individuals to avoid certain relationships or to not partake of certain things or maybe to consider this or that, and you're like, ah, I don't know. And what we do is we go and we look for other people who can show us the Bible verses we're really looking for to live the life that we want to live. And here's the real danger of this, friends. You may miss the whole point together, which is Jesus. Like, if your reading of the Scriptures doesn't actually lead you to greater allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ... You may not be under his authority. Do you know 
there are all kinds of people. Like in this area, like there's, I don't know how many churches are here, but like there are all kinds of churches that are actually opening the Bible today, but not getting to the point. And Jesus says, look, when you read it right, it points to me. Here's how he closes the deal. After he provides that, that like, like stunning critique of the Pharisees and their obsession with self, he says, look, I get, I paraphrase again, he says, I get that you think that I'm accusing you, but I want you to know something. I'm not accusing you in this. You know who's accusing you? Moses. Now, you're thinking, all right, Moses, um, this must be referring to the first five books of the Bible. That's true. But I want you to know that that's the bedrock of all of Scripture. He's saying the most foundational portion of all of Scripture condemns you. Notice Jesus' words, not my commentary on it. This is way more clear. He says, verse 45, Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He's saying, like, look, you're already up the creek without a paddle, not because of anything that I've done, but because Moses himself has already said that there would be one who would be coming that you would need to trust in for ultimate salvation. You're saying, Justin, I've read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I've never seen that Bible verse. Well, it's in two spots. One is this tincture that spreads through the whole thing. What's interesting about the, the, the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, is you read it and you realize, especially as you get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, that the whole thing is a setup. They're going to fail. There's going to be rule after rule after rule after rule. And like you're reading it and you're thinking, there ain't no way. I can't do all that stuff. I'd hate to do all that stuff. And that's the point. You get to the promise of the new covenant in the book of Deuteronomy and it says this. I'm going to have to give you a new heart. I'm going to have to do a supernatural work that will enable you to obey me. You will fail, but I will fix it. That's the first five books of the Bible. And one place where it's seen crystal clear that was already pointed to in the book of John is Deuteronomy 18, where they said there would be this prophet like Moses who would come, and he would finally teach you in a way that would lead you to the Lord That's what Nathaniel had actually said. Like, is he the prophet? Is he the one? How did Nathaniel ever know that from John chapter 2? He knew that because that's what the book was about. He didn't have those presuppositions that were leading him elsewhere. The point is, ultimately, friends, that God's word is the greatest testimony to the authority of the risen Christ. I've joked around about this before, and I will keep joking about it probably till the day that I die. One of the books that we're going to use in the discipleship training is so funny to me. It's called one-to-one Bible reading. You know why I think that's funny? I think it's funny that somebody had to market a book that says, hey, it'd be a good idea for you to read the Bible with other people. Like, when did we need a book to tell us that? Like, we've always assumed, you know, like, if we really want to lead somebody to the Lord and they're really skeptical, we can now give them, like, Josh McDowell. Or Norm Geisler, or some apologetic guy. Ravi Zacharias, before he disgraced himself. You know, like, we need an apologist. We need a specialist. Hey, I've got one. It's called the Word of God. And guess what? No kidding. 
when it is read with other people, God reveals his son, Jesus. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. You want that kind of of confidence that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Lord. You start reading this book for what it's saying and not what you want it to say, and it will change your life. You know what I respect about you guys? I mean this. I prayed about it today. I thank God for it. I thank God for this church's allegiance to the Word of God. I mean, I've preached hour-long messages here with minimal complaint. Like, you want to know what the Scriptures say. And what I want to encourage you with is you see the benefit of that in this public context. I want to return the favor. I want you to see the benefit of this in your private context. You want me to do it, right? Of course. Like, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be teaching you the Scriptures. But guess what? You have access to this same Word. And whether it be in your personal reading or in your evangelism with others, God's Word will do its work. It is evidence that Jesus is who He says He is. So, man, I've been trying to do that. I don't think it's working. Well, the other resource that you have is prayer, that God would open the blinded eyes of those who do not yet see. But I think that Jesus would actually have us walk out of a context like this more confident than ever in the witnesses that He Himself has provided. You can mention John the Baptist, the witness of God. You could point to his miracles and works. What other religious figure, if you will, has ever had the amount of works that Jesus has had chronicled about them? It's not a hard research assignment to do. And then the third is the Word of God itself is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing, to use the old King James, to the dividing of sunder of joints and marrow. How, how precise is that? A discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I love, 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 love. 2 Timothy 3.16. You know what? God's word, right? Inspired, breathed out, and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. It's the Word of God that makes the difference. It's the Word of God that will increase the confidence. Let me tell you, as we conclude three weeks of study on the authority of Christ, two prayers that I have for you who are gathered here today in light of Christ's authority. Two prayers. Ways that you can pray with me, ways we can pray together. The first prayer is that some would examine and enter. I'm, I'm giving you a prayer request, if you wouldn't mind either remembering it or writing it down. I, we, we, I pray that we should pray that some would examine and enter. What I mean by that is the authority of Christ is clear. And it needs to be contemplated. Like some of you are sitting here and you have wrestled in your mind over and over again, like, oh, I don't know. I mean, yes, I believe Jesus is a religious figure, but I don't know that I truly want to confess him as Lord. I don't know if he's like truly the boss or the owner. I don't know. This seems like a big step. And I'd say like, yeah, Jesus would even say to you, count the cost. Count the cost. But I'll tell you, count the cost, but come in anyway. (laughs) 
Trust him. Uh, the first step is, is nothing but, but faith. Faith in him enables the forsaking of sin. When you see him for who he really is, you no longer want your sin anymore. And then just a real crystal clear outworking of that kind of faith that he is Lord is that initial act of obedience, not act of salvation, act of obedience that says, yeah, I'm willing to identify with him publicly in baptism, confessing that he's Lord. I'm dead to my old life. I am alive in him. That's why, just a little personal note for a second, I'm less excited um, these days when people tell me, like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And like, until I hear that they actually want to publicly do so through baptism. I'm like, all right, hallelujah, we'll see. You know, like, okay. Uh, But when somebody is willing to say, okay, dead, dead. Bury me under that water. Bring me back up again. Alive in him. To me, that says something. That's the sign that Jesus gave. Some of you are here, you've contemplated, you've figured this out internally. You're like, yeah, I think I'm walking for him, but you refuse to identify with him publicly in the way that he is himself assigned. I don't know that you're under his lordship. Can I give one more? And I'm not trying to be a legalist. I am, I am anything but a legalist. But the truth is, some people say that they're walking with Jesus and they're living under his lordship, but they're doing so apart from his gathered church. That doesn't make any sense. How is it that you would claim to belong to the head and not to the body? I don't know what the internet has tricked you into believing, but if you honestly think that you have a personal only relationship with Jesus and you will in no way be associated with him in the company of his church, I just seriously doubt whether or not you've truly been born again. When I read through the book of 1 John and I see over and over again that one of the evidences of one who is in Christ is a love for the brethren. Remember that, that famous passage where he says, how can you say that you love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brother whom you have seen? It would just be weird. Something's off in this lordship thing if you're saying, yeah, I'm under him, but I'm not with his people. Just some concerns. But remember, it's examine. I want you to examine your heart and enter into this relationship with Christ by faith alone. Now's the time, friends. We've had three weeks on this. Now is the time. Prayer request one. Prayer request two. Embolden and enjoy. Embolden and enjoy. Friends, I I pray that all of you who are in Christ, walking with him in the company of his church, that you would be emboldened in your faith. You know, the truth is, we all have this tendency to be confident about a lot of stuff that doesn't really matter. We have opinions. We leave Yelp reviews. We tell people where we think they should eat for lunch. We'll speak up to what dry cleaners is best. And yet all of a sudden, when it gets to the realm of Jesus, we're like, less sure. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Now again, I'm not trying to turn everybody into the hyper-extroverted salesman type of individual, but uh, let's just be honest, like, we all express confidence in things that we're sure of. And I pray that this study over these last few weeks makes you sure that Jesus is indeed Lord. He's boss, he's master, he's owner, he's ruler. 
and that that would work itself out. Do y'all remember, probably back in mid-2000s, 2007, uh, Tony Dungy, the, the coach of the Indianapolis Colts, won the Super Bowl, first African-American to ever do so, claims to follow Jesus, and I don't have anything to doubt otherwise. Uh, but he published a biography, and I love the title of the biography, A Quiet Strength, A Quiet Strength. What's fascinating about Dungy's leadership style is he's not the Bobby Knight type. He's not the yeller. He's not the screamer. He's just quiet. He tells the guys what to do. But he has authority in his actions. You know, my aspiration for us is not that we be Bobby Knight types by any way, shape, or form. But that we would possess a quiet strength that just knows these are the facts. Jesus is Lord. No, you can't claim to be a Christian and live that way. No, you can't believe in Jesus and believe in this and that too. Like just straight up, just like confidence in in who Christ is. Like he's verified, friends. He is verified. You can be sure. I noticed the other day when I was looking for a restaurant to go out with my wife on a date. I went to... The, the review website that I typically go to, and it was interesting to see uh, 21, what they called verified reviews. I thought that was interesting. I never noticed the word before. So I scrolled down to the end of the page because I'm like, well, where are the unverified reviews? Guess what? They're there. <laughs> so I found a bunch more unverified reviews, and they were very interesting. I was like, I wonder what makes this unverified. Well, it were one, there were reviews by, like, the owner. So the owner can't leave a review for his own restaurant, for example. Or if it's just some, like, random member in the community who's never left a review before, and then all of a sudden they show up to leave a review, like, the system flags that. Like, nope, don't, can't trust that one. But you know what it's like to have the confidence to go to a place where you're like, man, there are a thousand, like, you know, five-star reviews here. This is awesome. There's a confidence that just goes there. Like, this could be a good experience. What I want you to understand here is that what we have is verified reviews. This This is going to be a good experience for you, friend. Jesus is indeed Lord of all. There's no doubt about it. And you can live under his lordship and not be threatened by it. And guess what? You can invite other people into it. It is fantastic. The water is fine. Come on in. And so I say, embolden and enjoy. Enjoy his lordship. And you know what I think the best way for us to finish this out is? To celebrate the authority and rule of Christ. Christ.